0: The following is a message from Charles Telfer at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474. Wscal.edu or call 760 480 74 We're continuing in our faculty series in Exodus, that great Old Testament book that records the high point of God's Old Testament salvation, his saving his people from Egypt. I'm the last of the faculty members to choose texts, and it's interesting that this section from 25 to 35, with the exception of the golden calf incident, was completely overlooked by the other faculty members. It seems to me that uh, this section is, uh, we kind of come to it with some groaning. We kind of slow down in our reading. We have architectural drawings and carpenter's plans and things like this. And it's notable, uh, Acts 15, 21 tells us that from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And if we think about that, these descriptions of the temple and its intimate uh, construction details have been read again and again and again by not just centuries of Jews, but millennia of Jewish uh, folk in their synagogues, right? If, if, and we say, why such attention? Is this not, is this not kind of that lover's uh, attention to detail that we see like in the Song of Songs, there's no, there's no hesitancy to, to spend time thinking about the beloved's figure and form. And don't we see that uh, amongst uh, Jewish readers, that every little detail is significant to them. And so how much more for us as Christians, seeing the fulfillment of these things in the greater Moses and in Christ himself, who is the tabernacle, uh, the connecting point between heaven and earth. So let's give attention, Uh, this is obviously a huge uh, question. I'd like for us just to read uh, a section in 25, and then I'll pick up again in 37. So let's look at 25, begin our reading in verse 8, and we'll we'll have something of a focus on uh, the ark, uh, this holy chest. And then it's amazing that we come back and we actually see, despite the unfaithfulness of the people in the golden calf incident, God actually accomplishes his purposes, and this is, it does come to completion and construction. So here, then God's word from Exodus 25, beginning to read in verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. show you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another toward the mercy seat, Their faces uh, one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Then turning over to chapter 37... chapter 37 beginning to read in verse 1 bezalel made the ark of acacia wood two cubits and a half was its length a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it and he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark And he made a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half was its its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. May God add his blessing to the reading and now our meditation uh, on his holy word. Amen. Brothers and sisters, well-beloved by our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps it's a little unfair, but I think that we as Westerners are the children of Henry James, the modernist. Don't give me poetry. Give me the facts. Give me realistic human experience, just as it actually happens, right? Just as we coldly scientifically experience it, right? Don't give me suggestive symbolism that I can't pin down and control with minute accuracy. But if we take that kind of modernist approach, when we come to the Old Testament, it seems like we lose so much of its communicative purpose. Dr. Poythras of Westminster, Philly, speaks about the details of the tabernacle as parts of a, quote, tantalizing visual poem suggesting a multitude of relationships all tied together in a single structure. It is fitting that the symbolism of the tabernacle should be multifaceted. After all, such is the character of the physical universe. It is created by God as one whole, one universe, and also with a fascinating, overwhelming multitude of interrelations of the parts. Such also is the character of Christ, who as one person contains in himself all the fullness of the deity, a manifold richness of wisdom and love. It's very rich here. Notice even the words that God uses to describe this project. Look at verse 8. He says, let them make me a sanctuary, mikdash. And that brings with it, you Hebrew students, all the associations of kadosh, that idea of God's separateness and his distinctiveness and his holiness. And then look at verse 9. He calls the project a tabernacle. Now, we get this from the Latin tabernaculum, but what is tabernaculum? In Latin, it's a tent. It's a tent. And he's, he, the, the Hebrew name here is the Mishkan. Mishkan in verse 9 and if you read then in verse 8 it uses the verbal form. It says uh, Shekanti so that I might dwell with them. So even there's it's, it's using that idea of dwelling. We might say that there are two movements even here in the, in, in, in the names but also in the description. There's There's the idea of separation on the one hand and there's the idea of connection on the other. And I'd like for us to meditate somewhat along those two lines. The idea of God's separation from us and then uh, his uh, uh, gracious connecting with us. Kind of separation, thinking in terms of law and connection in terms of gospel. The, uh, the, The... we we see here first this idea of God separation. There are difficulties for us in coming to God. There are, there are separations between us and the presence of God. We as human beings do not have unmediated access to God. As we approach the whole the whole structure, there is a there is a, a, a fence that uh, it keeps us away from the courtyard then there's a veil that keeps us from the holy place and yet another veil that keeps us from the, the inner holy place that perfect cube that describes the dwelling place of God we see that cube kind of magnified in the book of Revelation as God's dwelling place uh, there so we have as it were this, this the dwelling place of God in this cube what, what is the color of the, the, the veils on the inside it's kind of blue And what's the designs that are all around this veil? These are cherubim. And uh, over the seat are these cherubim, cherubim. To consider cherubim is to consider something frightfully holy and fearsome. Now, we're the heirs of Western uh, artist tradition. We think of Raphael as kind of cute little cherubs, right? Little babies with wings, how nice, right? But that's about the last thing that a cherub is, uh, according to uh, the scriptures we see uh, from the beginning of scripture we see cherubs associated with uh, guardians they're connected with a sword to exclude people they're, they're they're there to exclude kind of like barack obama you can wherever he goes there's certainly one thing you'll find around him people with eyeglasses on and i'm i know what's underneath their suit coats right it's a scary these are these are guardians they guard the holy presence of God. Psalm 106 speaks about his ministers as flames of fire. Isaiah 6 talks about their associates, the seraphim. The word, as we were studying in class just now, means burning. Burning. These are, are, in Isaiah's imagery, like seraphim, perhaps a burning snake-like winged figure, perhaps something like a dragon. This is a fearsome guardian, as it were, a monster, guarding the, the, the very presence of God. We see cherubs described in Ezekiel as having these kind of hybrid faces perhaps reflecting uh, the different qualities they have the strength of, of a bull they have the the speed of an eagle they have the intelligence of a human being and they have the danger of a lion these are these are formidable awesome creatures if you don't want to meet a, if you don't want want to meet a sphinx that's alive or if you don't want to meet a winged bull from one of the Persian temples something something like that You don't want to meet one of these cherubs as a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And if these creatures are terrifying, what must must it be to meet their master? It's a terrifying thing for for, for a sinner left to themselves. This throne, this this box, this, this construction is called in Scripture the throne of God or the footstool of God. It's kind of constructed like a footstool for a royal throne. There's no image of God but there's the image of his guardians, a fearsome thing. In some ways, even worse is what's in the box. What is, what is in the box? I guess it can't be more terrifying than the presence of God, but how is that symbolized within the box? Is the law. You have the, the, the constitution, as it were, of, of God's demands, these ten words in the box. Now, must we swear allegiance to the law that's in the box if we, as we, if we have a covenant relationship with this, with this sovereign king? And the answer to that is, is yes. But the problem is that we are the children of Adam and we've broken those laws and we continue to add to our guilt week by week and that's a fearsome thing. David tells us in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does these things shall never be moved. Do you and I, children of Adam, do we deserve to come into the holy uh, tabernacle? Do we deserve to come into the presence of God? We read in Isaiah thirty-three fourteen: 14, the sinners of Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? This is a very serious thing. What happened to the men of Beth Shemesh? You remember that? When they took and they opened the ark? Do you remember that? When they separated the, the, the seat of mercy and where they were confronted, as it were, with the straight law and presence of God itself. We read of them in uh, 1 Samuel 6, 19. It says that he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. We are, we, we, when we're faced with the law of God, we are condemned. We are, we are, we are convicted that we don't deserve to be there. We fall under God's judgment uh, and we are excluded from his very presence. But this holy chest points not just in the direction of excluding of law and of judgment, but it points in the direction of God coming to us in, uh, in mercy as well. If I might, uh, it's been very much on my mind lately, uh, in our Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we had presbytery last week, and there, we, we talk about the Mosaic arrangement as a republication of the covenant of works. There's a law principle operative there. Do and live, don't do and die. But yet, this arrangement is an administration of the covenant of grace, and there's some controversy over these, you know, how do you see these things? Do we not see them together even here? We, 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 we see grace, and yet we do see uh, a, a law arrangement uh, as well. So here, what, what, do we, what do we see? We see ultimately here that one that we're invited to sing about when we say, Oh, come all ye faithful, come and behold him, born the prince of angels. The prince of the cherubim? The prince of the seraphim? What, what must he be like to descend? It's almost as it were that he would descend from that throne and come out through the veils, come out to us outside the camp, as it were. Yes. We read of him in John 1.14. I'm sure you've heard this many times. That that word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The whole tabernacle ultimately is foreshadowing the reality of Him. And think of Him then, as it were, if He takes us, as it were, He does take us, and He leads us through the tabernacle complex Himself. He brings us, He becomes the Lamb of God at the altar to lay down His life for our sins. He becomes the laver that that flow of water from His side brings full purification for everyone in connection with him. Baptism now saves you, as First Peter 3 uh, tells us in verse 21. He becomes the lampstand. Jesus says of himself that he is the light of the world. And as that lampstand has kind of the buds of the almond in three stages, it's, it's almost as, as it becomes a tree of life uh, that Jesus says of himself that, uh, that he, he came that people might have life and that they might have it in Abundance in him was life, and that life was the light of men. We see at that when we look at the table of the presence, we see the question of fellowship between God and human beings. That in chapter twenty-four, verse eleven, that the elders of Israel behold God and eat and drink, and as each of the loaves is laid out there on the table, we're reminded of God's provision for His people, that He gives them the bread. And our Savior says of himself that he is the true bread, not the bread that Moses gave them, but he is the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life. We see the altar of incense, and as that incense, a a figure of of prayer, ascends to heaven, even even now we know that our Lord Jesus, according to Hebrews 7.25, intercedes for us in heaven. And then we come to that final veil. And is it not our Lord Jesus who takes us through that final veil as we see in Matthew 27, 51, separating the very presence of God for us. And so we can come into the presence of God, symbolized in this box. And on this box, there is a lid. There is a covering, a kaporet, okay? Kaporet means cover, fine. But does not not kapar, does it not have a, a greater sense as well, that it's to cover what else kapar is used for? Covering sins. That's the word used for atonement covering over sins so that God might be propitious. And so here we have this this cover where where one drop of sacrificial blood laid on it makes God propitious toward the one who's coming. And so here we see, as we read in Hebrews 9, 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So we have here, on this, in terms of this cover particular, not not where the uh, not where the sacrifice was made, but where it was presented. We have here, as we read in Hebrews nine twelve, He entered once into the holy place, not by means of the blood of bull, calves and, and bulls, but by means of His own blood, thus securing and eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, here we need to meditate. Here we need to camp our minds, because here's how we can have an assurance of salvation. If you measure yourself by your performance, if you think of what I've done and my academic performance, or my performance in these relationships, or this and that and the other, you will come short, and you'll never have assurance. The law can never be a basis of assurance for you, Your assurance of acceptance with this kind of a God, a holy God, must rest on this one, this greater Moses who enters, who presents his own blood, and that blood is sufficient. One drop of that blood is sufficient for your full and your permanent reconciliation, your complete acceptance with the Father, unending. And we need to camp our minds on that again and again and again. Let me kind of bring us to a conclusion more or less with uh, uh, a reading of, from Arthur Pink. He says, he focuses on this, and he says, it is impossible to overestimate the importance of thoroughly settled views of God's satisfaction in Christ. Many Christians never get beyond the fact, though a precious fact it is, that Christ's death has procured and secured their life. And even this, in the case of many, is not maintained. The reason for this is that we listen so often to the dictates of our own evil heart of unbelief which tell us that self must have a hand in the work of salvation, must contribute something to it. If not works, then feelings. But the truth is that God has entirely set aside ourself and acted for himself in saving us. God's glory and our salvation are indissolubly linked together. Accordingly, we ought not only to enjoy the assurance of our eternal security, but also enter into a deeper communion with God's revealed thoughts concerning the power of Christ's blood in relation to his throne in heaven. This is what the mercy seat or propitiatory, particularly, and so blessedly, typifies. It becomes the the seat of mercy, an old expression, the source, the source of mercy it is for us. Because we, as Paul says, are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Would you stand with me for a brief word of prayer? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this greater Moses who entered into the, not the copy on earth, but into the very reality of the the, the presence of God in heaven to present not the the blood of others, but his own blood, on our behalf lord convince us that that blood is for us that it is sufficient and cause us to go into the challenges of this day and of this week rejoicing that you have loved us with an everlasting love that we are safe and secure from all alarms and that nothing can separate us from your goodwill toward us in our lord jesus may your blessing be on each of us and our community as a whole lord watch watch out for us and grant us an assurance of grace for we pray in jesus name